and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 96 on December 15, 2022. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. Um, I would like to remind the listeners that this is the penultimate episode for this year. Uh, we've had a great year and I think uh, uh, we'll, we'll end it on a great note because at the staff retreat that is taking place this week actually, um, we will be recording a very special final episode of the year that will be broadcasted next week, uh, December 22nd. Um, so uh, last episode before Christmas will be next week and then we'll be off until the beginning of the year. I'll be in your podcast updates as soon as we get started again next year with more guests and more content um, and, and a lot of cool projects coming up in 2023. My guest this week is Dr. Maria Shagina. She is a Diamond Brand Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Dr. Shagina's research interests cover economic statecraft, international sanctions and energy security, with a particular focus on post-Soviet states. She held senior research positions at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs and the University of Zurich and has been quoted all over different media outlets for her understanding and work on sanctions. So, of course, we talked to her about the sanctions imposed on Russia uh, in the Ukraine-Russia uh, uh, conflict and uh, and see uh, what her reactions is to the effectiveness of those sanctions, what more can be done and how much coordination is needed between countries. You will hear more of that later. But first, we'll talk to Fred Roder, Managing Director of the Consumer Choice Center, about the new decision by the Swiss Parliament to unilaterally recognize um, uh, medical devices that have been previously recognized uh, in the United States through the uh, FDA. So uh, let's listen into that first. All right, Fred. So let's talk about this issue because I think it's quite interesting. So the, the, the Swiss um, uh, Parliament has decided to have a mutual recognition of standards when it comes to uh, uh, medicine. So this essentially means that what is approved by uh, the FDA in the United States will also be approved in Switzerland and vice versa. Now, how significant is such a decision um, for any government uh, when they make it? What, what, what does that exactly entail? First of all, it's really encouraging news. Um, it's not about medicines, but medical devices. And it would be unilaterally that Switzerland acknowledges FDA approvals of medical devices. So far, Switzerland has been uh, predominantly piggybacking on uh, European approvals, the EU's approvals, uh, which makes a lot of sense if you're a smaller country. Um, but now the uh, Swiss patients uh, have the chance to get even earlier access to medical devices if the FDA has approved them prior to European regulators having approved it. That is very good. Uh, obviously, uh, it should be extended not just to medical devices, but also to pharmaceuticals. And uh, ideally, it would not just be the EU's decision and the FDA's decision in the US, which would be taken by Switzerland, but ideally five or six uh, reputable uh, regulators. Um, you could see the problem of the lack of such competition between regulators with the COVID vaccines, right? The um, United States were actually very quick in uh, getting a emergency authorization. It was not a proper FDA approval, but emergency authorization for the first few vaccines. And then Australia, for instance, took about another four and a half or five months before they approved the first vaccines. Um, 
I would say a smart health policy regulator should say, okay, if the FDA deems it safe, we don't need to spend another five months looking into this and uh, seeing uh, more patients die or having severe complications of a disease um, and having massive lockdowns that cripple economy and mental health. Um, a few years ago, I actually testified about this in the US Congress, where we advocated for mutual recognition um, of medi medic um, medical drugs, pharmaceuticals uh, between the EU and the US. So the one good thing is the patient gets quicker access to it because sometimes one regulator is faster, sometimes another. Uh, on the other hand, you also create a competition between regulators because it, companies would go to the regulator that has the track record of approving first uh, because that would allow you to get your product quicker to the market. Hence, regulators uh, such as the FDA or the European Medicines Agency have an incentive to streamline their approval processes. And the FDA is not well known for being quick, um, So, but it, it would create competition because right now they have monopoly in their country. So there's very little incentive and political will to actually you know, streamline this. There's much more artificial artificial intelligence we can use these days to predict uh, what a drug or medical device can have in terms of impact. And that would also cut, cut costs for the um, industry, which means healthcare could get cheaper. Because right now you have to go to uh, basically undergo the same process in diff different jurisdictions. You have to do it in Japan, you have to do it in Europe, you have to do it in the US, which always costs a lot of money. And at the end of the day, these uh, approval costs have to be paid by someone and it ends up usually to be the patient or the taxpayer. So reducing and streamlining this is not just good for people's health, but also for our pockets. Well, since we have one more minute, Fred, I, I wanted to get in on this because it's very, it, it, it seems to me that sometimes we get these videos that we see on Instagram and Twitter of like a new robot. So this is in the medical device compartment department where a new robot can do incredible things to do surgery, but then it never actually ends up being used for several years. Um, and, and I think you, you alluded to that there, that um, that the approval processes uh, uh, do take a long time. So it seems to me that maybe the Swiss uh, will actually get some devices earlier uh, than, than the rest of Europe will, and maybe the Americans uh, by virtue of having this agreement with the Swiss. Yes, so that is... Uh, but the Americans don't have an agreement with Switzerland. It's just Switzerland unilaterally accepting the FDA's rulings on medical devices once that's been implemented. Um, yeah, approval speeds are one thing, but even when a medical device or drug is approved, it doesn't mean that the patient sees it. Uh, in Europe, most European health systems, which are heavily socialized, um, one thing is to have an approved drug. The other thing is to have the public health insurance or the health fund uh, um, reimbursing for that drug or procedure with the device. And probably Switzerland is also in a better position there. They have a much stronger private character of the health system. And they're usually insurance companies try to um, include uh, innovative treatments in order to attract more uh, customers. So, uh, yes, uh, but just being approved doesn't mean that the patient will see it, especially in countries like the UK with the NHS, which uh, unfortunately crowds out most private uh, insurance and they tend to wait much longer before they adopt a lot of innovative treatments as they are very cost conscious because not the health of patients is the key performance indicator, but um, sticking to the budget they get from the um, government. 
Well, thanks, Fred, for explaining these uh, sometimes very complicated issues to us in a, in a way that uh, all the listeners can understand. Thank you so much. So next up, we have Dr. Maria Shagina. She's a Diamond Brown Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. She has actually consulted government agencies, including the U.S. State Department, the U.K. Foreign Office, the House of Commons and the EU Commission uh, on uh, the issue of sanctions and energy security. So we wanted to talk to her as an expert about this topic and see uh, what more we can learn about the standards, systems and uh, implementation reality of sanctions in the real world. So um, you are an expert in this. You spend your days looking at the principles of sanctions and the effectiveness of sanctions. So tell us how effective have the sanctions been that have been introduced so far, um, both from the European and the American side? Are they any good? That's indeed the evergreen question, whether sanctions are effective, and that depends on your benchmark, how you measure it, and also depends on your expectations. People, but also policymakers, often have this heightened expectations that sanctions are this magic tool that, you know, can collapse the economy, avoid the collateral damage, split the elites and achieve the goal in no time. And that's unfortunately not true with no policy um, mechanism. So we need to understand how sanctions work and what has been put in place to begin with. So if we look at Russia sanctions now 10 months, uh, we have a solid response, much faster, more unanimous internationally, and also the scope of sanctions that has been imposed has never been uh, de uh, deployed against the G20 economy. Russia is, in comparison with other sanctions regime, is relatively well integrated economy, is a major commodity exporter, hence the problems with the, some of the design of sanctions. So if we look now where we are, we have this paradoxic situation that despite the barrage of sanctions that have been imposed from the EU, now we're awaiting the ninth package, we see more or less stabilization, macro stabilization of the Russian economy. The, the economy, the GDP is slated to decrease by only minus 3.4% as the latest IMF report shows us. It's a very striking contrast uh, with the minus 15, minus 20% of GDP as it was at the beginning. So where is the trick? <laughs> Why doesn't it collapse the, the Russian economy? And that comes down to, to two things. Uh, first of all, the way the Russian uh, central bank's technocrats responded was a rather skillful response, quick. Uh, they were preparing for, for it. Some of it was a playbook from 2014, how to respond. And the second issue here is the absence of energy sanctions. The sanctions that have been imposed on Russian energy sector, they're all long term. It's no new investments, no um, export for the technology, but it's all long term perspective, nothing around current production. So you have a situation where you don't sanction Russian exports and against the backdrop of high energy prices, Russia can accrue quite a lot. And by the end of this year, they will accrue almost 250, $300 billion. 
and you you slash your imports. So you have this skew where the ruble has rebounded and some took it as a measure that sanctions are not working. So for sanctions to work, you need to wait. And that's, I think, <laughs> uh, unpleasant truth for many that they need time to unfold. They need to be placed in a vacuum. In, uh, they, sorry, they're not working in a vacuum, so they need to be part of the larger strategy. So you have to deploy them in cooperation with other instruments, military deterrence, the, the help that the Ukrainians got, uh, also economic help, uh, financial uh, support that the Ukrainian government had will be super important here. So this is in, in general. But while the, the short-term uh, situation for Russian economy looks okay, the long-term is rather bleak because we're talking about decoupling on multiple levels for the Russian economy, commercial, financial, technological, and energy. So the one question that you ask me, which sanctions have been the most impactful, I would say depends on the timeline. At the beginning, freezing central bank's reserve was the most impactful because that measure was never deployed against G20 economy, only against rock states. But with the time, with by not sanctioning Russian exports of hydrocarbons, Russia will recoup everything it lost. Export controls on dual use goods, I would say, is the most impactful here at the moment, but again, needs time to unfold. So this is this is a very complex issue because it's hard to predict how a country might react to some of these uh, some of these sanctions and it's very interesting i read a piece of yours that you wrote um in which you say the overuse of sanctions leads to their routinization and could nullify their deterring effect customary visa bans and asset freezes on middle ranking officials can no longer work as an effective deterrent it is an expected reaction from the West and target states are prepared to respond with their own counter sanctions. And then you continued by saying that it requires countries to be a bit more creative on their sanctions. And you, in the same piece, you call also for more cooperation between um, what we would refer to as the Western allies, uh, Europe and, 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 and North America there. Um, what exactly would you imagine could be that creativity? Do you have suggestions or do you leave that sort of open-ended as to, as to what they could do and how they can work together? Well, first of all, that piece was written before the invasion. So back then, the, the common understanding was, which was reflected in um, the US Sanctions Office uh, OFAC uh, Sanctions Review Report, that we are overusing sanctions, meaning we're resorting to it as, as a standard policy tool. And that sometimes is not effective because countries expect it and the most... Uh, the, the problem is that as long as the country expects it, you can't really unleash that shock impact on the country and hence, uh, and, uh, hence um, improve the, the deterrence. The, the sanctions that I mentioned just uh, in my previous response, the central bank sanctions was not expected. And this is where I would say governments, Western governments thought out of the box, again, simply because that measure was not factored in by the, the Russian technocrats. They lost time in thinking how to, to counteract it. And that was a massive uh, you know, measure that was never used before. So that, that is something of it. 
imposing sanctions on individuals is not a bad measure per se. That is the, the probably the least um, uh, the the common measure that is used in, in in all sanctions regimes across different countries. But whether it's impactful, we need to ask a question what type of individuals were banning from traveling to the EU? Do they have connections uh, to the West? Does it really impact them? Are they just some technocrats sitting and rubber stamping things in Russia or elsewhere? And that's, you know, one individual is very different from another one, meaning with hierarchy and its uh, decision making. So it's not a bad measure per se, but we need to, to think whether it would have an impact. And sometimes we have very long lists, like today with the Russian case of individuals, whether, you know, sanctioning 8,000 individuals or 300 would, would make a difference, needs to be judged more, I think, um, sparsely on, you know, on the impact of this measure. But the other thing that I mentioned there is coordination is what has been happening since February. Again, unprecedented cooperation between not just the US, the UK now in the US, but you're talking about quite broad sanctioning coalition. And the reason why I'm saying it is because some countries like Taiwan, Singapore actually never joined or very rarely joined non-UN sanctions regime because they usually took a position that any uh, autonomous sanctions regime that is not in line with the UN sanctions is not really something for them to, to have a say here. But because of the atrocities, because of this uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that violated international um, rules and norms, it really struck a chord with many countries across. So it sends that not just symbolic message for the sake of symbolism, but it actually has been instrumental. The expert controls that I mentioned, uh, again, they, because it was such a broad coalition, the fact that South Korea and Taiwan joined that regime has been impactful because they, these are the two countries that have production of the semiconductors. So you have this broad sanctioning coalition is one of them. Thinking outside of the box is, <laughs> well, for, for the countries uh, to think further as we are embarking on this very long protracted war trajectory. So there is more to, to be creative about their um, thinking about Russia's vulnerabilities, in particular those asymmetric vulnerabilities, I think would be key because we are reaching the, the point where there is a strong narrative that sanctions hurting us, the West, more. So one has to be careful how to navigate it. So finding asymmetric interdependencies, for example, with the price cap, the fact that 95% of Western insurance comes from London and Russia is super dependent on it, is a good measure. So finding more of these examples would be a way to go. So for those for those who who, who unlike you uh, are not experts in this, um, uh, how can you explain why the uh, these packages keep being in these in these in these intervals? Because I, I open the newspaper and it says a new sanctions package. I'm like, okay, another one. Okay, why why don't we just start? Because it's not Russia is not the first bad country. I mean, we've had bad countries before and countries that have been sanctioned. We have a list, I would assume, of options that are available to do. Why don't we just 
put it up to 100 uh, as we as it would put a volume on a, on a on on a radio just put it up to 100 now it should all work i suppose it's probably simple uh, to explain it like that but i mean so so why 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 does it work in this structure because russia doesn't seem to respond each time there's a new sanctions package so why doesn't it go faster no it's a very good question i think um it comes down to this orator of sanctions, and there is a book on it as well. <laughs> how do you create the sanctions policy? What would be your first package? And how do you assess that this sanctions package is enough as a first measure to deter it? And what we learned was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we didn't deter Russia. So we need to go back to this drawing board and uh, contemplate where did we do our miscalculation on Russia's port, where did they were um, more, uh, you know, uh, had more appetite for sanctions pain, whether they just didn't believe that, let's say, Europeans and Japanese and other countries would join. So we need to understand it. But in general, the, the rule for sanctions policy is that you want to have this escalation ladder. You want to have this longer trajectory when you're dealing with a target, simply because a target can respond. So if they respond and you have no options in your toolbox, well, it's probably not as, as effective. So usually countries uh, want to, to have something, uh, you know, in their pocket um, uh, for, for future interactions of that. But it's a good question because it comes down to the also another phenomenon that is happening, particularly in the EU, that some countries lobby, well, let's leave it for later, right? For example, the diamonds, rough diamonds are not sanctioned. Well, some countries are lobbying it and saying, well, you know, it was going to again hurt us more, but we can use it maybe later and we need to adapt. In the meantime, we need to find new uh, partner, new supplier. That is part of the politics that is happening also behind the, the sanctions policy. And then I had one last point because we're getting to the end of how much time we have for this segment. And I, and I really appreciate your insights. And that is... Um, you alluded to some of that, that every country is specific and we need to sort of adapt to what exactly hurts or might deter a country uh, and not to continue in its aggression. And uh, what I wanted to ask you about is sort of the, the, the effects on individuals. Um, so we've seen everything from the access to bank accounts to the conversations on which visas should be continued, new visas giving out, cancelling of existing visas. Um I, I'm always I'm always a bit uh, torn because um, I, I, Dimitri, who runs the corner shop around the street, I'm not sure if he uh, if he would have invaded uh, Ukraine, but I'm also not sure if he should also suffer some consequences for having supported a regime that he may or may not have supported. So it's a complicated conversation for people as well. To well, do I still go shop there? Is that is that a, how how much do you draw in individuals into the political ramifications of this? And sort of from what you've seen, um, because the, to my to my knowledge, the claim seems to be by um, affecting individuals, they will also argue against their um, against against the state that perpetrates these crimes. Um, is that a realistic scenario? Do you see that there can an effect can happen uh, through the the sanctioning of of individuals who are not even political actors per se? 
usually as some of your neighbor or uh, who is uh, in the in the shop that you refer to you usually need an evidence right so I hope <laughs> that that's the the standard for for this so you can't just sanction anyone just by nationality or something that's why the eu takes so long to to come up with it in terms of sanctions against individual, it can be both. It can be as part of punishment, it can be part of deterrence uh, and coercion. So, as I said, any individuals depends, right? If those are powerful oligarchs, you have more chances that by sanctioning them, by depriving them, their Western lifestyles, you can unleash more pressure on them. And the expectation is, as this naive theory of sanctions goes, that that pressure will rise to the top to, for example, to the Kremlin. With just some technocrats who just rubber stamps decision in the parliament, it's it's harder. So it's more as a punishment, as a symbolic decision that those people who have rubber stamped or who has engaged in these atrocities or you know endorsement of annexations in invasions and so on, they just can't live their life as if nothing happened. And some of them do travel, some of them not because they are you know part of the uh, security services and they're not allowed. So again, that measure, you can't, you really need to parse out who is sanctioned and how that individual is affected. But ultimately, as I said, it's part of this naive theory that the, this pressure from below will rise to the top. Unfortunately, there is no straight line to the top. It goes in very convoluted ways. So it needs right constellation of things you need to have as let's say powerful opposition leader who can channel that pressure from below to the top and that's not always the case dr maria shagina thank you so much for your time today thank you for joining the consumer podcast where can people read more of your content find out more about uh, your expertise i think twitter is the best place <laughs> thank All you right, so I'll much be I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be mentioning that in the outro and also linking in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Dr. Maria Shagina on Twitter at Maria underscore Shagina. That's S-H-A-G-I-N-A, also to be found in the description of this episode. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As I said earlier, uh, today is the penultimate episode for the year. Uh, next week, we will be back with a very special episode, special guest special roundtable discussion with uh, members of the staff of the Consumer Choice Center. So yeah, see you next week. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.